0: Our New Testament gospel reading comes from the gospel according to John. We're going to be reading there in chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This is the word of the Lord. Be to
1: God. This morning, we come to a passage that begins with John 7 53 and runs through chapter 8, verse 11. Probably all of you in your Bibles, if you have your Bible with you, it makes mention of the fact. This passage is omitted in many of the best manuscripts that we have, the most ancient manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. And that's the truth. Many scholars think it was not a part of John's original manuscript. So you say, why? include it in our study? Well, we cannot be sure with absolute certainty that it should be excluded. It could be that it was in the original, but the scribes recording the manuscripts, copying the manuscripts, thought it was inappropriate because of Jesus' treatment of the adulteress. But as you look at the story, the story fits the immediate historical narrative of a Jesus being in the temple of Jerusalem at the Feast of the Booths and under attack from the religious leaders. It fits that. R.C. Sproul states in his study of John's gospel that he believes this, this account to be historically authentic. In other words, it really happened, and that it is apostolic. It came from the apostles. The story also fits the gospel narratives of grace and forgiveness. Over the years, I have personally found that this passage is one of the most powerful scenes, and events that takes place in the Gospels. For those and several other reasons, I've chosen to include it in our study. So before we come to this powerful, powerful scene and passage, let's pray together. And I do this every week, and I press this upon you. I stand here right now knowing That I cannot say anything that will affect you, that will change you. I can't do that. I can't preach that way. I can't teach that way. There's been, Elijah could not preach that way. Paul could not preach that way. What did Paul say? My preaching is a demonstration of my eloquence, demonstration of my great theological expertise. No. He said, my preaching is a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything else takes the credit away from God. And to Him alone belongs the glory. And that's what we should all be about. So, as we come to this passage, would you pray with me in your heart as we pray together? Father, teach us. John Sartell can't do it. You teach us, Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. This is that opportunity that we have. We pray in the week individually for our families, our marriages, our husbands, our wives, our children, our grandchildren, our parents. But now, right now, we're all linked together. Souls. We're, we're, we're linked not just by holding hands. Father, we're linked from the very inside of us as your people worshiping together. And we're your priests. You've anointed us to be priests, all of us. If we're called to serve Christ, if we're called to love him, if our hearts have been changed, you say in your word that we are priests and we're to bring our concerns before you. Our Father, this morning, we pray for Bobby Harris. You know him, Father. He's the father of Gene Thomas and Janet Kearney. He has a broken hip, and you know that. We pray that you would bless his surgery, that it would do what's designed to do. And Father, he's just been, and you know this, he's just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We pray that you will powerfully heal Bobby Harris. But more than that, we pray that he would look to you and look to Christ and look to glory and be without fear. Our Father, we pray for David Mattingly. Our Father, you know his body. You know exactly what needs to be done, and we pray that you would cause that to happen. Give the doctors a unique focus and intention as they examine him. We pray for every part of his medical treatment, that you would bring healing, that you would give him many years yet Oh, Father, bring healing to him. We laugh and rejoice, Father, with the Gishas, David and Carolyn, as their daughter has given birth to a baby boy. We pray that you would bless this boy, that he would be strong physically. But more than that, we pray most of all that you would give him the faith of his grandfather and grandmother. Oh Father, we pray that for all of our children, all of our grandchildren, that you would keep them inside those blood stained walls. Our Father teach us as parents and grandparents to be the teachers to our children and grandchildren, to be the examples to our children and grandchildren that you've called us to be. And now, Father, as we come to this passage, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts. Bring your word to us this morning in power for the glory of Jesus Christ. Change us, Father, maybe some of us for the first time We pray when we leave here in a few minutes, we will know that you have spoken. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How could a righteous and just judge say that? We saw last week that the theme of John 7 is the firestorm that engulfed Jesus and the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Jesus was at the center of that firestorm. This story this morning that opens chapter 8 shows that the firestorm that we've read about and studied the last few weeks in chapter 7 just continues, the same feast continues in the same city in Jerusalem. We're told that The evening before, Jesus had left the contentious confrontation with the Pharisees. He had left the temple and spent the evening at the Mount of Olives. But look at the next verse. In the morning, what's what's the first thing he did? In the morning, he returned to the temple. He didn't go home to Nazareth. He didn't say, I'm going to stay away. He went back to the temple. The great crowd that was there celebrating gathered to hear this famous rabbi from Galilee teach. We read that he sat down and began to teach. You know, every word in scripture, there's it, it, there for a reason. When rabbis taught, they didn't stand. I'm standing as I teach you. If I was a rabbi in the tradition of that day, I would sit down and teach. He sat down and he taught. His teaching was interrupted by the same contentious Pharisees again. They brought a woman with them. These are religious authorities, religious leaders, religious teachers. She had been caught in the act of committing adultery. And these, they brought her to Jesus and said, we want you to render a verdict. You say you're Messiah. Messiah. Messiah has to be the king, he has to be the judge, so what would be your judgment, your verdict on this lady? Now these men were not showing respect for him, you already know that. They did not believe his claims. They had been plotting actually to kill him for his blasphemy as he claimed to be deity. This was another effort on their part to accomplish their goal of destroying him. And you say, well, how would what he said in response, when he rendered a verdict, how how would that help destroy him? Why would they be doing this? In the law of Moses, adultery was punishable by death. Death both for the woman and the man committing adultery why would there be such a serious punishment for adultery? Well, adultery was seen as an evil attack on the family and on the home. You go back to Genesis, the family was the first God-ordained institution he created. God-ordained... That the family would be the foundational stone of every civilization. We can't get away from that. It's still in evidence today. Adultery was an attack upon that foundational stone. So if Jesus rendered a guilty verdict, he would be saying she deserves capital punishment. Stone her. Well, immediately these religious leaders would have gone to Pilate they would have gone to the Roman governor and said, there's a rabbi out here and he is in the process of executing someone. Now the Romans gave great latitude in the countries they conquered, in the local provinces and cities they conquered. They gave great latitude to local customs and local laws. And they allowed, for instance, they allowed in Jerusalem and Israel that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body would continue to rule. And they would continue to execute local justice. But they could not issue a judgment of capital punishment. They couldn't issue a judgment of death. Only the Romans could do that. Well, they, Jesus would have said, stone her. Then they would have gone to Pilate and said, see, you've got to get rid of this man. You must destroy him. On the other hand if Jesus did not render a guilty verdict he would be in direct conflict with the Old Testament law. He would be denying the inspiration of scripture. He would be denying the authority of God's law and that would be a matter for the Sanhedrin. I want us to stop right in the middle of this scene. We try to do this week after week when there's a scene like this to put ourselves in the middle of it. And you have these religious leaders. You have the crowd. You have this this woman. You have Jesus. Stop and look at the scene. Look at the wickedness of these religious leaders who were supposed to be so godly. They were participants in an evil that was much greater than anything that this woman had done. First, they had caught the woman in the act. Well, if they caught her in the act, where's the guy? Where's the man? For some reason, they had let him go free. He could have been a part of their conspiracy, giving them the, a place and time so that they could arrest the victim that they wanted to set before Jesus. If you read this and stand back and look at it, they weren't actually zealous for the law that this woman be punished. They were really after Jesus. That was all. It was a test for him. They wanted to spring this trap. they were willing to drag this woman from the scene of adultery straight to the temple for all the people to see and their goal was to get rid of Jesus. Stand back and look also at how these men treated the woman in comparison to how Jesus treated her. So how did Jesus respond? And this is utterly fascinating. If you've been asleep till now, wake up. This is so fascinating. So... Here's a woman. Here's the the religious leaders. And of all things, Jesus gets down on his knees. He gets on the ground, and he begins to write with his finger, right in the dust. And immediately you say, well, what did he write? Well, commentaries all over the place, and there are conjectures as to what he wrote for the last 2,000 years. There's all kinds of conjectures, but they're conjectures. But there's one explanation that I found in only two commentaries. And I believe this explanation hit the nail on the head. First, read the exact words describing what Jesus did. Chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. He wrote with his finger. Where else in Scripture did someone write with their finger? Look at Exodus 31, 18. And he gave Moses, God gave Moses, When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 10. And the Lord gave me, Moses is preaching, this is from a sermon by Moses. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I believe when Jesus kneeled and began to write in the dust. Now, remember, they had said, hey, judge, what's your verdict? So they were talking about the law, and they were talking to him as a judge. I think Jesus alluded in a subtle way to his identity once more. And he began to write the commandments that he had once written on tablets of stone. He began to write them in the dust it must have taken some time because if you look at verse 7 he was down there writing and they're not paying any attention to it and as they continued to ask him they impatiently pressed him so it must have taken some time to write this brief synopsis of the law and when he had written the brief list we read he stood up and what did he say to them this fits so well What did he say to them? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Now, again, let's understand. By Jewish law, by their law, if someone came and accused someone of adultery or of a capital offense, and they were found guilty. The person was found guilty. The accuser had to throw the first stone. The accuser had to throw the first stone. And Jesus said, you've accused her. And I think he pointed to the ground. And said to these men, pointing to the ground, pointing to the law, saying, if you're without guilt... Then you throw the first stone. Then it gets more unusual. He stooped and began to write again. And up till now, I hadn't taken anything from RC, but I took this from RC. I think it's interesting. That maybe he got personal here. Maybe he wrote. Benjamin beside you shall not steal and when he got to the commandment you shall not covet he wrote Judah and when he got to the commandment you shall not commit adultery he wrote Jacob in other words he confronted them with their sins I think this is what this passage is all about would We ought to hear those words from Jesus when we speak in such a condemning way of the sins we encounter daily in our world. Listen to me as Christians. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. We have a proclivity not to see our own sins and to speak very strongly about the sins of others. It's like we have some kind of a spiritual amnesia about our own sins. People, look at our salvation. When you join the church for the first time, and if you moved your membership and you joined the church and you came to another church and joined, the questions were always asked again, the same questions. What's the very first question as you come to the church do you believe yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, his judgment, and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? Our first statement is not about our goodness. It's about our sin. After his piercing statement, after he stoops to ride a gang, the accusers begin to leave. The older and wiser men were the first to walk away, we read. And then the younger firebrands followed. And then Jesus stood. And for the first time, he addressed the woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the woman answered, no one, Lord. Lord. I think there is more in that answer than most commentaries admit. Many translations have the woman saying, no one, sir. The Greek word that's used there, kurios, can be a polite response to a male. It can be, sir. But in the New Testament, as you know, it usually refers to someone who's lord, a king, a master. Caesar was known as Kyrios Kaisar, Lord Caesar. I don't think she was using this term as a term of polite respect. I think she was actually calling him Lord. It was quite impossible for the woman not to know who Jesus was. Everyone in Israel knew of him. She could have said no one, but she didn't. She added, Lord. That's what we do. Have you actually looked at Jesus And called him Lord. When we do that. When you do that. When we do that. You cross a line. You're not saying sir. It's not some kind of polite respect. That the world might have. No. You're saying. You're Lord. You're Lord of heaven and earth. And you're my Lord. I'm bowing before you. at this point I would just ask you pointedly I don't care how old you are I don't care how long you've been a member of a church or if you've been a member of a church or not but is that how you look at Jesus have you crossed that line you're my Lord my creator, my sustainer and my redeemer and I bow before you And I want to love you with all that I am. So how would Jesus then respond? What would Jesus say to her? There stood Jesus, the Son of God from glory. One who will judge all mankind. Who will judge all of history in that final day of wrecking. Every sin. And there stood a woman, a wretched woman. Guilty. Guilty now. Not accused. Guilty of adultery. His judgment has got to be accurate. It must be just. It must be perfect justice. It must be holy. And this just judge from glory utters words that seem impossible for a holy God to say to a rebellious adulteress. Jesus looked at her and said, Neither do I condemn you. Most people, that's become a saying. If I had stood before you at the beginning of this message and said, Neither do I condemn you, you would have said, Oh, Jesus said that, and he said the woman caught in adultery. And we've never said, because we didn't understand, We've never said, Jesus, how can you possibly say that? You're the judge of heaven and earth. Jesus, you know she's guilty of this vile sin of adultery. And Jesus does know because he tells her to go and sin no more. Listen to what Jesus said about adultery to the church of Thyatira in Revelation. Look at Revelation 2, 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira Write the words of the Son of God, the words of Jesus, who has eyes like a flame and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation until they repent of their works. That's the same person speaking There is the same person speaking to this lady in John 8. of all things Jesus could say he said neither do I condemn you how can a just judge from glory say that is he corrupt is he an unjust judge is god like that judge is grace is grace just one great big injustice of a crooked god Do you know that Jesus is our lawyer? That's what scripture teaches. Jesus is my lawyer. Jesus is your lawyer. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, notice it says, it's not only Jesus Christ the lawyer, but he is righteous. So what is Jesus on our behalf going to say to the Father? What does he say? You know, if I were a lawyer, I would have a hard time defending a client that I knew absolutely was guilty of some serious crime. Because I would find myself trying to find some technicality or make some argument so that he could walk on this thing. But what does our law, your Jesus, say about us when we sin? See, say, Father, you know John Sartell. He's really not that bad. Father, you know John Sartell. This is the 25th time this week he's done this sin. But he's done a lot of good this week. Father, for my sake, give him another chance. Father John really does not realize the serious nature of what he's doing. Is that what Jesus says? What does Jesus say when he argues my case? There's only one argument. Jesus shows his hands and his side. And the case is closed. Jesus addresses the court Yes, John is guilty. But John's debt to the law of God has been paid. His sentence has been served. And he looks at the Father, and you know what he says? Jesus says, I want justice, Father. Justice means that you must be faithful to your word, Father. You must set him free because by our agreement, by our covenant before the foundation of the world, I paid his debt. I've taken his sin. I've taken his guilt. And I've taken his punishment. And no charge, no charge can be justly brought against him. I love the symbol of the cross. Many of you are wearing crosses this morning. I love that. But what organization would choose a hangman's noose or an electric chair or a firing squad or a gas chamber as a symbol for their organization? We would say, I don't want to be a part of that organization. It does that. But we are. The cross is our symbol. It was the instrument... Execution, the most cruel execution in the first century. And we wear it. What are we saying? Paid. My sins, my crimes, my cosmic treason, every lie, every lust, every piece of hate, every sexual immorality. The debt's paid. The sentence has been served. See, do you understand? Jesus could only say that to the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus could only say that because there was a cross in his future. In a few weeks from that time, He would take our idolatry, our blaspheming of God's name, our stealing, our murder, our lying, our adultery, her adultery, her materialism. And when that happened, when that fell upon him, consider this the righteous judge, his father, Did not say, when all that sin fell upon Jesus, the Father did not say, neither do I condemn you. That ought to shake us. The foundations of this sanctuary should shake. Do you understand that? Jesus uttered to that woman what his Father did would not utter to him. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God did not say to him, neither do I condemn you. The righteous judge on the throne in glory that day would throw the first stone and he would throw the last stone. Do you see how powerful this passage is? Jesus, this father would throw the stones until his holy justice had been satisfied, had been fully met. Oh, people, he did not look at that woman winking at her and saying, it's all right, dear. Neither do I condemn you. As if everything was okay, he tenderly in mercy said that because at great cost to Himself, He would pay her debt. Amen.